Sinister Myth, How Stories We Tell Perpetuate Violence. This podcast challenges cultural mythologies about sexuality in the West, because so often they encourage, perpetuate, or foster violences against women and minorities. It is supported by an Ohio State Affordable Learning Exchange grant and is created by Zoe Brigley-Thompson and Brendan Walsh. Hi, I am Megan Moore, and I first became really interested um, in dance at a young age. I started, you know, as most young children do, dancing in my home, and my parents put me into some lessons about the age of two. And what started out as just a really a creative outlet and a way of exploring my body became a much deeper passion over time as I really understood that dance was a main form of expression for me in growing up and also really married some of my creative interests with my scientific interests. I've been a big nerd for most of my life and really was interested in not only the anatomy of the body, but the biomechanics of the moving body. So that really led to me studying both kinesiology and dance at the undergraduate level. And so a lot of my work has been really about both the combinations and the intersections of how the moving body is a creative vehicle, but but also how we care for this moving body. So I, I currently teach at Penn State University and I'm involved in a lot of work with somatics and I see the ways that who we are at our at our deepest level, at our essence, at our creative possibilities and potential really can be informed with the physical body as a vehicle. And by learning about the body, how we care for it, how we help it to heal, help it to release. That's amazing. And how about Alicia? Yeah, so I would say I actually didn't become interested in the physical body until college. Um, What I have always been interested in, I feel like what I was born and part of what my purpose in life is around expression, personal expression, authentic expression of self and the explorations of how that can come through. My talent tends to lie in the physical form of movement and of working through the body, but it wasn't because I was interested in the body or specifically in dance as a form. What I was interested in is sharing and showing and connecting and expressing. And that happened to start at a very young age through movement. And I think that movement for me has always been my first vocabulary and my first mode of expression. And the first way that I seek and find connection with others in terms of community building, that it is the bodies in the room and the bodies in space and the bodies in motion that um, is how I learn to reference community and the world. So for me, the aspect of like, oh, this is a physical body or the mind-body divide and the mind-body connect and all of those types of explorations were much more theoretical and began, you know, as I began to become um, a practitioner on a different type of professional scale. But for me, and first and foremost, it always comes back to authentic expression of self. It's fascinating because this podcast is actually about stories that we tell. And I'm really interested in how 
dance has sometimes been associated with expressions of sexuality and desire. And maybe that's something to do with the physical nature of it. And I, I can't help thinking of that quotation by George Bernard Shaw, um, where he said that dancing is a perpendicular expression of a horizontal desire. Yes. <laughs> and I wondered, what do you make of this association of sexuality and dance? Oh, you know, I think that's so interesting because, you know, having been self-initiated into being a dancer and an, and an expressor through the body at a very early age, there was nothing but pure magic, innocence and joy for me and movement. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as I got older and it was the projections of others and specifically the projections of men, Mm -hmm. um, both in dance and outside of dance that really changed my relationship with my body, my understanding of what others expected my body to do and be. And, you know, really in a way tainted the art form, mm -hmm. um, for me. And it was something I went through probably about my second and third year of college of really questioning myself and having to do a lot of deep inner work around my choice to be a performer and how could I do that without feeling like I was whoring myself out and giving my body away and mm. being used as um, an object of desire by the audience? And I had to do a lot of work. And this is really what led me into postmodern theory and to the work in story and autobiography and identity creation that I began to explore as an undergrad and continued on into grad school with. Um, because for me, it was very important that I was in ownership about why I would choose to place my body on stage. And it made me be very conscious of the types of choreographers that I worked with and even in the ways that I presented my own body and the bodies of others on stage because I think that in a lot of way, the mainstream society does believe that the female body especially is there for consumption and therefore to be you know, an object of lustful desire. And that is not my relationship with my own body. Mm -hmm. It's a very sensual relationship with my body. And I do believe in the sensual and sexual expression, but by choice, not simply because I am there for you moving. And I think that this way that we have relegated the female body to simply be an object of desire has removed the power of movement and the power of movement as a tool of communication and connection. And before there was language, there was movement. And that is true through our, our own personal evolutionary state. When we're in the womb, we begin moving and our cells are always moving. And so the idea that my movement must only be relegated to sexual expression, I think is just preposterous. Mm. And, um, very patriarchal in, yep. its, in its context and used specifically to uh, demean and diminish, mm. right? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That's amazing. And it's interesting because do you think there's still this pressure for the bodies of dancers on stage to be white, heteronormative, thin bodies, you know, and how do we resist that? I do think so. And I, and I do think the resistance is strong and I think it's full forced and I think it's making a lot of inroads. But I think the fact that it's still a resistance is part of the problem, right? That there's still a norm to be countered, mm -hmm. you know, and I think we see this in the fact that we have to celebrate someone like Misty Copeland for being an amazing black ballerina with an athletic body. 
That's not normal. So we must celebrate it. And while I appreciate the celebration, what I think we need to be ready to take deeper steps in just dismantling the idea that there is a normative body for any form of expression. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, something that we saw in the Tonys this past weekend, which I didn't watch, but just, you know, through Facebook news, thank goodness, um, was that a woman in a wheelchair won a Tony, the first woman. And, and for that to be like, oh my gosh, a woman in a wheelchair could win a Tony. That's just preposterous. That's ridiculous. Of course, women in wheelchairs and men in wheelchairs and of all types of different abilities and bodies can express and perform and act and dance and write and, you know, whatever the means of expression is. And so just to believe that there is a certain body that is more meant for anything, it's pretty archaic and it really shows, again, our lack of kind of coming into truth around physical form and really wanting to hold a hierarchy of whose body gets to do what. And, you know, again, I think that's around power structures and, and it's around opportunity and gender and class come into that so very much. Yeah. I don't know if Megan has anything to add about the body and, you know, we're, we're both body. So Megan is a white female who comes probably, we probably come from a similar class situation, but we come from a different, very different race, racial profile situation. And, you know, for me, there was a point growing up as training to be a ballerina where I was told to be sure not to get any sun. Don't tan because right now you still look white enough to be a soloist, you know, and, or to fit into the core. But if you get too dark, then you're going to stick out and you're not going to be part of the group. Wow. That's terrible. Terrible. But do you think both of you, do you think that dance is underestimated as, you know, a vehicle for exploring minority identities like people with disabilities, for example? And I'm asking this question. I have something in mind. A few years ago in London, there was a a dance production about the Mexican artist Frida Kahlo. And it actually managed to use certain kinds of dance techniques to explore her disability, which is often ignored in the story of her life, you know, which is told, especially in America and Europe, you know, often her disabilities are, are ignored. I just wondered whether you felt like dance is underestimated as something that can really explore those things in an interesting way. I do think so. And I think for me, there was this and, and I can't remember particularly in my life when this revolution kind of came about. But for me personally, I use dance and movement quite interchangeably. And I think that part of it actually has to do with our connotations around the word dance, that a person or people must have a certain type of, of body or look or training um, in order to quote unquote perform or, or, or to be seen in this way. And for me, dance is just... Um, a choice of, of a form of movement. And I think I, I've even started claiming myself as more of I, a movement teacher versus a dance teacher. And I think that when we use the movement of the physical body as this vessel for expression, it can it can be dance, right? And And so I think that if we can really promote this idea that everyone can dance and that all of movement is dance, it really changes, I think, what we can what we can view it as for the vehicle of personal expression and make space for all types of bodies and all ability levels and all ways that expression wants to come out through this physical body. 
Mm, interesting. Thank you. And along those lines, but slightly different, um, I was also thinking about how in the media, sometimes different kinds of dances seem to catch fire or get attention. So if you think about twerking or, or Vogue, or there are lots of different kinds of dances which, which have particular moments. And I was wondering if there are any kinds of dance in particular that you think are especially subversive or, you know, that, that kind of open up possibilities for expressing the identities of women and minorities. Yeah, well, you know, you mentioned voguing, which is actually a very subversive form. And, you know, I think what happens is because the way we whitewash things and, you know, just move it into the mainstream and co-opt it and appropriate, we have lost the understanding of where these forms of movement come from. And so much of what comes out, especially from the othered body, such as something like voguing or twerking, um, crunking, all of these aspects, you know, they do come out of this desire to express and from a different viewpoint than the mainstream, you know, and mm. it's something that for me as dance history teacher is so important to get the students to understand because we're still taught in the studio. If you come up through dance that like ballet is the basis of all dance. Mm -hmm. Okay. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Um, right. So this very box specific use of the spine and limbs is the basis of everything, which is just crazy, right? But that's still the norm that's taught. So you still have students who do not have a balletic form or their natural structure does not lend them toward this very perpendicular angled expression of movement, hold that this is what they're supposed to do, rather than really understanding that there's so many forms that the body can take. And these aspects, such as twerking, are meant to be a very different type of expression of the body. And I, I just think that, that kind of the form of like, well, that's high art and low art. And those kind of aspects are, again, a way of keeping the power structure and the financial structure from allowing things such as voguing or crunking um, to be as valued as something as ballet. That's amazing. And there's something else about your work that really inspires me. And that is a lot of the work that you do around trauma, dance and the body. And I remember I first encountered your work when you were doing a performance some years ago now at Penn State University. And it was inspired by the writer Edward Danticat, a writer I love. And uh, it was very much about commemorating trauma and enabling healing. And mm -hmm. I wondered if you could talk about that and how that work came about and what you were trying to do in terms of thinking about dance, trauma, and healing. Yeah. Yeah, so I read Edwidge Danticott's book and was so moved by it that it took me into movement. It took me into wanting to express what I was feeling. And it was, you know, the story of Haiti and the Dominican Republic and the slave revolution. And the, the idea for me of what remains after that type of trauma, both on a personal level and also in, in a society and a culture, who are we? How do you go on? What do you take with you? What do you leave? How do you continue to construct your, yourself and your identity? And I think that that was a question that had been in my psyche and had been in my explorations for a long time. And reading that book 
gave me a different type of framework and a language to, to look at this type of question. I feel like all my pieces, I kind of, after about 10 years of making dance was like, I think I'm making the same piece over and over again. And it really was this question around who are we inside of trauma? Who are we inside of loss? And how do you continue to go through life knowing that that is part of it, that the trauma that you've endured and the trauma that's coming is part of life. And, and is there hope inside of that? Can there be hope? Can there be a reconciliation? Can there be a, a renewal? And, you know, so I think these larger questions that are apparently the questions that I'm asking in this life were definitely what was coming through in mm -hmm. my work. And so the whole dance is moving backwards. The dancers move on stage. They only can enter from one side and they only exit from one side. And all of the movement comes in from the back body. And I was really interested in playing with the concept of time and how do we, how we get stuck in memory, how we, we can't live in the present moment because we're continuing to replay those moments over and over and over again, because the trauma is so Im immense that we don't know how to go on. And I just think that it has continued to be an exploration. And even though I've moved from making concert dances about this into more of a therapeutic form of working with people on coming out of that, reimagining the trauma or reliving it through the body over and over again, I think the question for me is the same of how do we learn to move past something? How do we learn to metabolize our trauma? And what stories are important to hold inside of our bodies and what stories are important to let go of so that we can heal? And, um, you know, I think that that was what I was exploring in my early work as a choreographer. And it's what I still explore when I'm working now more one-on-one -on -one with people in their own healing journey. But yeah, the question is the same. How can we go on? And, and what story does our body tell us? And I find this really interesting in relation to research that's being done about how the body holds trauma in quite a physical way. Yeah. Um, there was a book by uh, Bessel van der Kolk called yes. The Body Keeps the Score, which is a really interesting book. And mm -hmm. I wondered if this idea came into your ideas about choreographing dances around trauma, this idea of how the body holds on to trauma and how it can also be released. Yeah, it didn't come into my choreography so much because I wasn't very influenced by the research around memoir and autobiography and the performed eye and the construction of identity. I was not doing any research at the time in trauma. And it really wasn't until I stepped out of making dance that I fell into understanding um, you know, the body keeps the score type of work and really looking at um, Peter Levine's work on the polyvagal theory. And what they did was they reaffirmed for me what I knew intuitively and what I had been exploring intuitively, but they weren't theories that I was kind of working with until, you know, really after the fact of coming out of choreography. But it, it for me, affirmed the truth of that work because it what it is what I know through my own body and what I've come to know through working with other people's body. I always called the process that I would go into in the studio of, of an excavation. So I was not inventing movement. I wasn't inventing a dance. I wasn't even making a dance. What I felt like I was doing was excavating the language and the story that wanted to be told from the body's perspective and allowing the body to move. And I think that was one of the things that drew me into being an improviser and 
and really teaching my dancers to move from an improvisational place of being able to allow the body to speak because when the body can move through what it's holding and when we're not trying to cognate the story or language the story, our ability to heal from our experiences are much greater in my opinion. It's one of those places where I think that talk therapy can fail us because there's a way that we get stuck in the mental body of trying to make sense of something. And trauma by its very nature is a nonsensical experience. It's something that is beyond your sensory ability to process. And so if we then continue to go back to trying to language it, to try and know it from this mental body understanding place, we miss an opportunity of healing through fully through the body which is that we can clear the trauma all the way through our cellular patterns if we allow the body to speak, if we allow the body to have it say, if we allow the body to, to process it. And we see this very simply in nature when an animal has a shock or their, their fight or flight system gets activated and then they shake and they allow their body to speak. They allow their body to go fully through processing that moment of trauma and then they come back into their neutral or their homeostasis. And, you know, animals, of course, live on, in a very high alert state. And, you know, it's something that we need to pay attention to because now our neurological systems are different than animals. But the, the idea that we don't have to hold the trauma, I think, is something that is a very different aspect in our mainstream identi identities because we orient ourselves to our trauma. We orient our identity and our life to holding this story of trauma. And if we really listen to the body, what the body wants to do is the body wants to release it. The body wants to move through that trauma. It doesn't want the trauma to be the identity. And that's one of the reasons I believe that we have a higher rise of autoimmune issues, which is something that I myself have, have had to heal from. And I think it is this holding of the stress body, the holding of the trauma body as our identity that keeps us locked into the breakdown of the physical as being our way of knowing ourselves instead of the regeneration of our physical. And it's interesting because I don't think that in American society, for example, that we're, we're really encouraged necessarily to express having experienced something traumatic. And something that I found really crucial and important about the work you were doing was that it was this very beautiful and expressive way of really representing you know an experience of trauma through dance and it seems really important yeah thank you you know a couple of years ago I took the work in in a different direction of really looking at laments and the rituals around grieving and that's when Megan and I started going to Ireland and we were really working inside of these ruins and these physical spaces that really represented the, the, the breaking down. And there was something really beautiful about allowing that physical space to inform the body that like letting go and <laughs> releasing was part of what the lament process was. And I think that, you know, that's one of the things I became obsessed with ritual because I kept thinking we've lost this from our culture. We've lost this normality to going all the way through letting the body feel and let go and process and grieve and wail. And I became obsessed with like the wailing wall and the women who would wail and banshees and, mm. and this, you know, this, this way of like actually expressing and feeling 
the grief and the loss and allowing ourselves to, yeah, to go all the way through it. And I think it's something that when, when, when we've experienced loss in our life, we, we know that pressure from society to get it back together, to, to, to get back into life, to keep going, to buck up and, and get, keep that chin up and get positive and, you know, all these kind of aspects. And I just, I really don't believe that's healing. <laughs> um, and not, not the idea to not keep going on. I think that however we continue on is fine. But I think the idea that I should get back to my regularly scheduled program of modern human <laughs> consumption <laughs> as, 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 ma- as making sure everyone around me knows that I'm okay, you know, without allowing the fullness of grief and loss to be felt and honored. I think really honoring there's so much, we lose so much in this life. It is a huge aspect of being human. And I think that we need to honor it and allow ourselves to process it physically in a much more mindful and regular way, just a normal way. I, something that I dream of having is a space where people can come for grieving circles and you can just come Mm -hmm. and walk a labyrinth or stand in circle and shake or just be able to cry and to wail and to not have someone feel uncomfortable about that. It's something I do when I work with women one-on-one is really give them the space to let their body and their emotions and their process be whatever it needs to be without being afraid for them to go all the way through it. 